You're listening to The Local Maximum, Episode 9. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. All right, you made it. It's time you made it. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, don't you dare leave this podcast and search for The Global Maximum. That podcast is utter crap. And you'll have to get through all these non-maximum podcasts on the way, and you may never find it. It's just not worth it, I swear. All right, that's a joke. I don't know if there is actually a global maximum podcast, but uh, I have to be careful because if I learned one thing about this podcasting business, it's that there's always a pod, any name you can think of, there's a podcast of that name. So I have to be careful someone's going to come up with a Global Maximum podcast or someone's going to say, hey, that's my podcast. I'm offended by what you're saying. So, disclaimer. I was listening to some of my old Max and the Wiz audio files. That was my radio show back in Yale in in 2004. And the openings, I can learn a lot from the openings, but the openings used to be on a Friday. And he used to say, hey, it's Friday, relax. It's, you know, it's all over. Enjoy the weekend. But these... This, these local Maximum uh, podcast episodes come out on Monday night, Tuesday morning, so it kind of picked an odd day. I can't really say, I could say get ready for the week, but that's a little bit um, strange. I don't know, I might, I'm also not wedded to my particular schedule, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, but for right now, the weekly cadence is working pretty well. Uh, this is another episode on my own today. I am planning on doing more episodes with guests. I have a bunch of guests in the pipeline, some really interesting ones, some having to do with marketing and machine learning and more entrepreneurship and, and bots. We'll see uh, We'll see who I can get, but I have a, have a bunch in the pipeline and I think we might do a few more on my own, which fortunately I got a good response from, but then we'll go back to kind of a spate of guests. And of course, in a couple of weeks, I'm giving a talk to undergrads at Yale and maybe I'll uh, talk about some of the issues we brought up on the program, but that might be good enough for a podcast episode on its own. So later today in the second half of the program, I'm going to answer a question about what I would do at Facebook and Twitter when it comes to moderation. So, you know, you have these open social networks, anyone can post on them. There's a lot of abuse. Uh, what would I do? Um, I got really involved in my answer. It's really deep rabbit hole, but I think you'll, you'll enjoy it given that, you know, all the controversy around Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook is now going to testify before Congress, uh, shortly. So this is really topical, but first I want to, uh, well, one of the things that I want to do on this program is introduce concepts and ideas that are helpful to the audience in interpreting the world, whether you are, uh, Well, particularly if you work in tech, if you're an engineer or an entrepreneur or or anything, Um, but even if you're just a person who likes, you know, who who likes reading the news and likes learning, you know, all these, sometimes these very simple concepts that help you understand and organize your thoughts are really, really valuable. So one of the ones that we did, for example, at the beginning of these podcasts, all the way back to episode zero, is Bayes' Rule. Bayes' rule is a really good way of thinking about how to update your beliefs, given new information. And today, 
I want to talk very briefly about the Lindy effect or Lindy's law. Now, this is something that's used in forecasting, technological forecasting, trying to make predictions about the future. As you know, making predictions about the future is really hard. People get it wrong, you know, all the time. And so, but, you know, if you're going to be building products, if you're going to be, you know, uh, figuring, if you're going to be trying to figure out what problem to solve, because, you know, half the battle is not just trying to figure out how to solve a problem, it's trying to figure out which problem you should be solving. And so in order to, in order to figure that out, you're going to have to correctly forecast what is going to be uh, in use in the future. And so this Lindy's Law, I found, I sort of, uh, uh, I, I found it a couple years ago, or maybe last year, and I found it a really helpful framework for forecasting, uh, along with the law of accelerating returns. That's probably more popularly known as uh, Moore's law. Um, you know, Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil popularizes that one. I think we'll get to that one in a future episode. That's an important one too. Uh, but Lindy's law, which is how long we should expect uh, a, a piece of technology or or design pattern to last, is also really important. So. Lindy's Law was recently popularized by Nassim Taleb. He's a really interesting author when it comes to uh, probability and uncertainty. Uh, his most recent book is called Skin in the Game. I haven't read it, but I read uh, the book before that called Anti-Fragile, um, which is where this comes up a lot. Um, and I think he, I actually think he is, he's a professor here in Brooklyn. I'll have to check that out. Um, Lindy's Law was also popularized by Benoit Mandelbrot, who's the uh, creator of the, uh, or the discoverer of the Mandelbrot set, Chaos Theory. I met him, you know, 15, for about 15 minutes, I had a conversation with him uh, when I was at Yale. Very interesting guy. Um, and originally, uh, Lindy's Law comes from discussions that were had in Lindy's Deli in Times Square, where people would sort of gossip and talk about Broadway shows, and they talk about how long they thought the different shows were going to last. And the law is very simple for how long they think a show is going to last. Uh, it's, it's surprisingly simple, and it sort of makes you question it, but here it goes. It says that the future durability is equal to its history. So in other words, if a show has been on for three years, we can expect, on average, that the show will last for another three years. So, for example, uh, the Local Maximum podcast. The, this podcast, I've been doing it for 10 episodes, 10 weeks. So maybe we can expect it to last for another 10 episodes, another 10 weeks. I'm going to try to beat expectations, but we'll see. Now, the first thing that comes to mind, you might be trying to wrap your head around this, is obviously this is not literally true. Uh, you know, if something has a life cycle, you're only at the middle of its life cycle, you know, at one point in time. So only if you're exactly in the middle of something's life cycle would you expect Lindy's Law to be exactly true. But we don't know where we are in the life cycle of a lot of these technologies and design patterns. And so it's best to kind of assume that you're in the middle. And the reason for it, I think, is that, and uh, Nassim Taleb has another article about it 
where he goes into more detail about you know, his reasons for it. But I want to give the kind of simple intuitive reason is that if something has been around for longer, then it clearly solves a much broader set of problems. And it's a good way of solving that broader set of problems. It hasn't been disrupted in that period of time by something better. And so, therefore, it's less likely to be displaced by something better in the future. Now, that's sort of uh, counterintuitive to how we're used to thinking about things in the technological world. We're used to thinking, okay, here's an old technology from the past. It's ancient, and we're going to build a better mousetrap, and we're going to replace that, and then we're going to take the better mousetrap, and then we're going to replace it with something better, and so on and so on and so forth. But in reality, uh, what happens is the, the things that we're replacing are actually the newer things, and then the things that are old kind of remain. So let me give you a, a good example so uh, we can, you can wrap your head around this. Um, I asked Dennis if you know smartphones as we know it will exist in 10 years, and he said, I hope not. Um, I think 10 years is actually kind of a, a short period of, of time for this, but maybe 10 or 20 years. Um, you know, smartphones as we know them have only been around, well, since the iPhone came out, about 10 years. So we can maybe expect it to last for another 10 years. Now, how about uh, something like the bicycle? Do I think there are going to be bicycles in 10 years? Absolutely. I think there are going to be lots of bicycles in 10 years. Bicycle is an old technology. Uh, it's been around, I don't know exactly when the current form of the bicycle uh, occurred, but it's definitely over 100 years. And it solves a very specific problem. It's a very good device for uh, you know, getting around in both an urban area and also you know, and also in a rural area, and it, it's uh, kind of human-powered, so there's a lot less that can go wrong. It's a very good way of transferring human power into, you know, speed in a safe way. Um, and so I, even though the bicycle is an older technology than the smartphone, I expect bicycles, as we know them, to be around for longer than smartphones as we know them. And I don't think anyone would say, I don't think anyone would say if I asked, hey, do you think bicycles will be around in 10 years? Anyone will say, oh, I hope not. You know, I mean, unless you're thinking of something that's going to replace the bicycle, but I don't know what that is. So now let's talk about that answer with smartphones because we talked about, well, what replaces the smartphone? You know, it's interesting. A smartphone is a lightweight device that goes in your pocket. Um, in terms of lightweight devices that go in your pocket, now if we, if we generalize the technology to just lightweight things that go in your pocket, that's not going away either. There are, there are always going to be lightweight things that go in your pocket. You know, I already have four things that I need to take with me every day. It actually gets a little overwhelming. I'm trying to reduce that. Usually I have three things, but now I have four. It's always my phone, my wallet, my keys, and, uh, and my headphones, and then also my sunglasses. Sometimes there's a fifth thing, but that doesn't really fit in my, my wallet, my, my pocket. But anyway, um, there'll always be things that we'll put, be putting in, in our pocket, but the question is, what function will they be serving? Will they be serving the same function as the smartphone or the wallet or the keys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, well, we'll see. But I thought it was interesting when I went back to that discussion that I had two episodes ago with Dennis about what would replace the smartphone. We talked about um, heads-up display, sight, and we also talked 
about as our kind of stretch goal, um, transmitting information by thoughts. Now, if you can transmit information by sight, um, well, that would be a brand new technology. But if you imagine the form factor of that, just sight itself or thought itself is something that's very, very natural to the human experience. I mean, thought is around as long as life itself, and so is so is sight. I mean, you could say, okay, this is sort of something that kind of bakes into the, you know, the basic drive of humanity in terms of language. Like, you know, okay, language has been around for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions of years, language as we know it. And so if we can transmit that language through thoughts and through sights, that's the most natural way to do it, or through sound, obviously, as we're doing with our, um, you know, with our headphones. It's almost starting to disappear now. But, you know, some things can't be transmitted through sound. Some things need to be transmitted through sight, and some things need to be transmitted through thoughts. And so if we figure out how to do that, that would be a better solution than the clunky solution of uh, a rock in your pocket. So that's one interesting way to think about it. Um, now, the question that I want to go further into when it comes to Lindy's Law, and we'll bring this up a bunch, is how can you tell? So yes, if I just bring up, hey, there's something around, and it's been around for 50 years, so do you think it's going to be around? How long do you think it's going to be around for? Well, without having any more information, I would say it's going to be around for another 50 years. But you can get information, and sometimes you could tell if something is at the beginning or at the end of its life cycle. But you need to have an argument just past how long it's been around to understand whether it's going to be at the beginning or end of its life cycle. For example, I think that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is at the very beginning of its life cycle. Um, this stuff has been around for about 10 years, and I think it's going to be around for way longer than 10 years. And also, you know, every year, it occur every year it's around, it gets stronger and stronger because part of the... Uh, well, part of the risk of these things is that they're not going to be around for very long. And so the longer they're around, the less that risk, you know, is inherent. And I think the internet itself is also a good example. The inter internet's been around, well, I guess the, if you talk about the World Wide Web, it's been around for 30 years. Maybe you could say the internet's been around for 60 years. That's a long time. I don't know. Uh, another 60 years, I'm sure the internet in some form will be around. I don't think it will be disrupted in time. So that's that might be a good example of something that's in the beginning, but I actually think it will probably last way longer than that. Um, so I think the internet is still at the beginning of its life cycle. Now, talk about something like print media. You may be thinking that print media must be an example of something that is at the end of its life cycle. But if you're talking about print media in general, just like um, printing stuff, on a piece of paper and handing it out. Uh, that act, I'm pretty sure, will be around for a long time. Maybe their current business models are coming to an end, but the technology of print media, I believe, is going to be in use uh, quite a bit in the decades to come. Social networks, as we know them, I'm talking about Facebook or Twitter. This might be an interesting example because I'm gonna talk about them later in the episode. Um, how long do I expect them to last? They've lasted for about 15 years. I put the ones that uh, we, uh, like the, the specific companies, the specific services we talk about, I think that we're best, best off going with the Lindy's Law here and just saying another 15 years um, because they seem to be 
somewhere in the middle of their life cycle. Uh, you know, even if we see the fast rise of these crypto networks, as we talked about in episode six with uh, Chris Dixon's article, I think these things have a lot of staying power. And I don't know, maybe even in 20 and 30 years, they'll still be, you know, it'll be like AOL. There's still people on it. Um, I, so I can't think of a very good example for something that's actually at the end of its life cycle. Um, sometimes that's actually very the hardest one to predict. Uh, we could probably predict it for a specific company, maybe some specific retail companies. But again, retail itself in general is too old. It's too generic a solution to go away completely. I think in 20 years, yeah, there'll still be retail, but they'll have reinvented their um, their business model. So we could say that the current retail, uh, some aspects of the current retail business model are going to be disrupted very shortly. So I'm going to be expanding on these ideas, but if you have any examples yourself, please let me know. I would like to uh, hear your thoughts. Uh, you can email the show at localmaxradio at gmail.com. And now we have not quite a sponsor, but sort of a sponsor. All right, so the bottom line is that I'm looking for some new coworkers, and I'm looking for some people to join Foursquare. If you're a fan of this show, uh, you know, you're welcome to join but and apply for jobs at Foursquare. But hey, if you don't agree with me on everything, you should still consider it. I don't think any of my coworkers uh, agree with me on everything. Um, and one thing that I'm going to post on the show notes page for this is a recent answer that I wrote on, on Quora. Um, and the person asked, you know, I have offers from Bloomberg, Foursquare, and Groupon for software engineering roles. Which companies would you choose and why? And so I gave the case for Foursquare. I talked about how it's still a small enough company that you can own a really big piece of the product and then have a real impact. Um, if you're interested in machine learning, data science, and NLP, then we have a really sophisticated system. And if you work here uh, for uh, a year or so, you'll become a real expert in those things. Greatest venue and location-based database in the world. Um, talk about how you can just, th this podcast in particular, you can just listen to episodes in this podcast of people who I work with and you can get a sense of who they are and, you know, what other company can you do that with? And uh, and that's another thing. You can get great industry exposure. And also, uh, many of our engineers have gone on to do um, great things in their career. So, um, and also, who doesn't want to know how to get all the swarm stickers and uh, you know figure out how to beat their friends in the leaderboard? So, okay, if you're interested, you can go to foursquare.com slash careers, but also just email the show, localmaxradio at gmail.com, and I'll answer any questions that you have about working at Foursquare. And um, I'm happy to help you navigate you know, which, which role that you should apply for, and we'll get the process started. All right, thanks. Back to the show. All right. One of my listeners wrote in anonymously, and they're getting a really long answer. <laughs> they wrote in anonymously, if you were an engineer at Facebook or Twitter, how would you tell them to moderate their content? For example, what's the best way to deal with abusive accounts and fake news? Now, that's a really great question, and I think that it deserves a long and detailed response. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, so first, I'm going to go off on a tangent, and I'm going to talk about the problem. Let me go out on a limb right now and make a prediction. It's very dangerous 
to make a prediction on a podcast because they last forever, so I'll know if I'm right or not. But I'm willing to face the consequences of my prediction, and if I'm wrong, I will totally admit to being wrong. But I don't think I'm going to be wrong. That's why I'm making this prediction. So from what I've been reading and from what I've been hearing, there are a lot of efforts by these companies to, quote, solve the problem. They're going to cite a lot of research studies. There's always a lot of good research studies to help, um, you know, build uh, confidence in doing what you already want to do. Uh, they're going to hold a lot of town halls. They're going to pretend to have a lot of empathy for all of humanity. And then they're going to say that this is the time that once and for all we're going to get serious about it. Uh, for some reason, we didn't get serious before. I don't know why that is. But we're getting serious about it now. So here's my prediction. I think all these initiatives are going to fail or at least come up far short of their promises. Um, either they're going to be non-change changes. In other words, they're just going to pretend that they're making big changes while there's this big public outcry, um, kind of, and then it goes back to business as usual once everything dies down. I don't think it's going to be that bad. I think they're actually going to try to make some big changes right now. I think they, uh, they seem to understand that there is a problem. Um, and again, I don't know why they didn't understand there was a problem before. I mean, I, the YouTube comments have been poison for years and years and years and years. But I think that the leadership in these companies understand there's a problem now, and they're going to go for big changes. But I think that those big changes are either going to backfire or it's going to decrade the quality of their platforms. And I want to explain why why that is. You know, why would I say that? Um, is it a lack of respect for Twitter or Facebook and the people working there? Do I think they're incompetent? And no, no, I don't at all. I think there's some great engineers there. Um, and I think they they have people who, who know what they're doing. But I do think that they're stuck in a singular way of thinking that's gotten them successfully uh, to the point they're at. Um, I mean, some people would say, well, Twitter could have been a little more successful. But let's put that aside for a second. I think that there's a certain way of thinking that has successfully, that, that has brought success up to this point, And they're not going to be able to change that way of thinking. And this is the kind of change that's going to require a little bit of creative destruction. You know, um, hey, this organization... Uh, their way of thinking doesn't work anymore. We've got to build a new organization from scratch. And the biggest misconception in the minds of people like Facebook and Twitter and Google is that they are really great at being the neutral arbiters of information. Their big problem in their minds is that they can't be there to moderate every single post. If only, if only we could moderate all of the posts that are on our system and all of the accounts, then we can do a good job and we can figure out uh, who's good and who's not so good. So, you know, we'll, have, we'll hire tons of moderators and sure, some of our moderators might get it wrong from time to time and sometimes uh, one will abuse their power, but we can correct that swiftly and it's just too bad that we can't be everywhere at once. And so if that's your conception of the problem, if that's what you think the problem is, then... I know what the solution is going to be because it's a solution that I, always, I build all the time. Step one is have a small number of people moderate a small amount of content and then get, get feedback from the community, make sure that those posts get flagged correctly. And then step two, use that as training data 
to build a machine learning algorithm that uses this information and builds an automatic uh, moderator, like a robo moderator. Uh, we know where this is going. I hey, this is where what has been built in the past, and I I know because I sort of built one and it kind of works. <laughs> this is for all sorts of spam found in Foursquare in Foursquare tips. I built a spam detector, and it's not so bad. It kind of uh, it kind of filters out the spam in Foursquare tips, um, and so sometimes spam in Foursquare gets crazier and crazier, and then we have to build models to. Um, to, to capture those, it never ends. But, you know, we seem to be uh, winning, more or less. But here's the difference. Here's, here's where the problem is different now. You know, we, and, and I'm talking about engineers in general, the royal we, I, I can't take credit for it, just, just what I did. But we spent the last 30 years on the internet dealing with run-of-the-mill spam. That would be solicitations, the Nigerian prince, everybody knows about that guy, the... You won your money, but you send me money first scam, uh, link farming, viruses, phone numbers, all that stuff. While there are some gray areas, all of that stuff has one thing in common in that people know it when they see it. Nobody is going to argue with you that the Nigerian prince thing wasn't a scam. So in this case, there is a more or less objective right and wrong. X is spam, Y is not spam, and we all agree. But guess what? That's not at all the world that we're dealing with right now. And that's why 30 years of thinking on this issue is starting to break down. What's considered abusive when you have an open conversation like Twitter? You know, the kid pointing out that the emperor has no clothes is going to sound abusive to the emperor. And guess what? The emperor makes the rules. Now, I'm using Twitter as an example right now. I know we're going to need to break it down between the different networks because they're different, but it's a good example here. And you might say, okay, you know, so long as you get your idea out in a friendly manner, then it won't be abusive. You know, you can say that the emperor has no clothes in a very nice way. Well, you know, I tend towards trying to do that. I hope people try to do that. But, well, a few things. First of all, I think it's so hard to get your voice heard these days that some people do resort to ridiculous stunts, and it's hard to draw the line between what's really passionate and really over the top. And also, is there a global standard for politeness? I mean, this is not, you know, this is not being thrown into a, a, a standard college classroom where you all go into the same school or kind of a, uh, this is not a, uh, a town hall meetings. You know, we used to have those in Connecticut. Um, where, yes, people argue, but there's a certain standard. I mean, this is, there are people all over the world on these services, all different types of people. This isn't just you and your friends. You know, you have polite cultures, you have really ag aggressive cultures, you have monks, you have brash New York billionaires who run for president. Everybody, everybody's on these things. And it's not a surprise that they can't get along. And it's not a surprise if there's a lot of controversy about censorship. So it appears that we're in a no-win situation. If you have a conversation that's open and anyone can jump into it, then it'll eventually be subverted by a loud, really annoying minority of users. And this is actually another uh, one of you know, uh, the concepts that uh, Nassim Taleb puts in his, his books is one that's called the minority rule. And so uh, this one, 
What this one says is that if there's a dedicated minority that feels really strongly about something and the majority isn't aligned against it, uh, then the minority will tend to get their way. And so the example he gives is one where he was hosting some Orthodox Jews and began to worry that they didn't have kosher lemonade. But it turned out that all the lemonade had been certified as kosher because the company who made it felt it was sort of a relatively low cost to uh, be able to include these people as their customers, and all their non-kosher customers didn't really care. So the minority rule isn't a bad thing. It's something that uh, occasionally allows a diverse society to get along, but it could be a problem sometimes. And in this case, when it comes to Twitter, you can get certain groups hijacking conversations, and then you end up with an end product so that you really don't want to have, which is you can't have the conversation that you want um, because um, some jerk always wants to talk about something else. Here's, a, here's an analogy that I'm going to try. Have you ever run a meeting at work or at school or whatever? Do you know how hard it is to stay on track on that meeting sometimes? You know, there's sometimes there's people who are trying to hijack the meeting. Sometimes people just talk for way longer than they should be talking. Now, imagine if everybody off the street was invited to your meeting and then there was no one leading it. That's Twitter. That's the problem that we face. So the open model doesn't really work. Uh, how about the closed model? Well, that's what's going to lead to censorship. Um, and that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not going to lead to a, a free and open debate. I think people believe that they can somehow have strong moderation and have a free and open debate at the same time. And it's... That's that's sort of what they're going for, and it's very hard. It might be impossible. And I think this is going to defeat the purpose of the whole thing. Uh, the range of debate, the range of discussion that people are going to have um, becomes what Twitter or Facebook or Google uh, think it should be and want it to be. And it might be good for some things, uh, but I think it also they also run the risk of making these products bland and boring. Now, YouTube, YouTube had a bug, apparently, I'm reading this article here, that demonetized some of its videos. Here is a good example. That's another concern when you try to make these rules. Uh, here I have an article from The Verge. It mentions how a technology channel uh, and a travel channel were demonetized. Obviously, you know, very inoffensive things that have no business being demonetized was somebody, you know, somebody abusing the system? Was somebody mistaking them for something else? Or was it just a bot? I happen to think it was probably just a bot gone awry. You could see, you know, their, their high cost in this. Now, for, you know, the, the, so it was algorithms by the looks of it. And YouTube has promised them that humans will review all these decisions and get back to them. But that's eventually. And that's very frustrating when you're trying to run a business and when your business is on the line. And um, by the way, all these companies have a right to do these things. And as a disclaimer, they should get credit for having these platforms to, for these people to make a living on it all. But yes, it is very frustrating for these content creators when their livelihood is being put into the hands of a bot. So now we're getting into a different territory. Those are clearly non-offensive. Those are clearly things that are just um, censored by a bot. 
But I did a search for today, and you can find at least one of these a day or one of these a week. And so this is just what I happened to find today. So it's this uh, Trump-supporting duo, Diamond and Silk, and they've been demonetized by Facebook and probably by YouTube, too, or just Facebook. So apparently Facebook wrote them an email saying that they were, quote, unsafe to the community. Now, sometimes you'd expect kind of a, a damning quote to go along with that. I searched and I searched. And no one has produced anything. So, I mean, <laughs> I kind of think that a good 30 per, I could get a good 30% agreement in the country that support for Donald Trump is unsafe to the community. But that's minority rule again, right? So this kind of stuff is just going to kind of in the long run give a larger platform to people targeted for demonetization. I think it's going to be very frustrating for them in the long term, but in the long term, it's going to make these services kind of bland. It's going to mean that people are going to be very careful what they say. They're going to tailor their, um, they're going to tailor their content to what the algorithms do, and the algorithms aren't going to be particularly smart. Um, but uh, you know, maybe some people out there are thinking, well, if we can just get rid of the Trump supporters, it would be so wonderful. But you can see how they end up being the thought police, and then all these unrelated blogs get targeted too. And I got a chance to review these particular videos a little bit, Diamond and Silk. They're not all right. They're not targeting private citizens with vitriol. And if it's just a conservative message, how can you target that and still consider yourself the platform for the national conversation? So I think these lines on what the conversation should be need to be as wide as possible. Uh, personally, you know, this is just me personally. I'm a very curious person, so I want to hear from everyone. I just don't want everyone to hijack my conversation. Let let me give an example. I like to use the flat Earth people as an example uh, because it's kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, it's really stupid. These people actually think that the Earth is flat, but I it's less inflammatory. I get because it's not it's not politics. It's not religion. It's just some people who want to take us back to, I mean, you have to go, it's not even Columbus's time, you have to go way back to people thinking the earth is flat. Um, so I, I think, here, here's how I would think about them. I'm fine with them having a platform. I'm fine with them monetizing their stuff. It probably could be entertaining. Um, hey, I'd even meet one one day and find out why they believe what they believe. I'll have them on my podcast. But what I don't want is every time I have a conversation on Twitter for someone to come in and tell me how I've been duped by the round earth conspiracy. I don't want to post an article about the wonders of the solar system and have these guys immediately swarm me, you know, solar system, that's fake news. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. It just sort of um, d distracts me from everything that I'm trying to do. So, and I don't want to deal with that during the day. So, and, and also, here's the thing, they're going to try to put a little button to report fake news. Twitter and, and Facebook might do that. It is totally going to be misused by these people. You'll have the flat earth repeated, people reporting your flight times as fake news. You'll get the craziest, most radical people on all sides hitting that button. That's the minority rules effect again. And this reminds me of another article that I pulled up here. And uh, then I'll get to my solution, I promise. Uh, this last one is from Mother Jones. This is one of those examples where I can't tell if it's parody or if it's real. I guess that's Mother Jones these days. But the article of this, uh, the author of this article was reading a science fiction novel called Nomen, and I haven't read it, but it's sort of interesting, makes me interested now. And they pulled up a quote that mentioned Foursquare, so that's why it was in my 
um, on my radar. And this is what the quote said. So like Foursquare, my interview said, with the doubt of a young person looking at an old man in front of a computer, exactly like that, I said, except that our users will record incidences of hate. We'll be working initially to produce a live map, a live traffic congestion map of more or less racist areas, safe routes home, institutionally racist police forces and local authorities, local populations. We'll have a star system and so on. So... That's an interesting quote. There used to be a time when people were trying to invent the four square of everything. You know, you had four square for dating, four square for dogs, four square for feelings. I remember that one. It's like, can I check into exuberant happiness? And oh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, four square for pictures. Oh wait, that one was built. It turned to turned to Instagram, as it turned out. So anyway, back to the quote. Um, I, from what I know about science fiction novels, it sounds like this probably isn't going to go very well. Um, and, but the author of the Mother Jones article is kind of egging us on saying that someone should build this. Hold on just a second. Are you insane? I mean, this is how, <laughs> this is not how we're going to start relating to each other better. By tagging people in places like, it might work for businesses, but not for people. We'll end up dividing into camps. There'll be no intercamp dialogue. And if anyone out there is really passionate, go for it, build it. But it's going to be the worst thing for humanity, just so you know. Uh, it reminds me of an app that came out a few years ago called Sketch Factor. And what that did was it had people mark the sketchy parts of town. I put that in quotes uh, so that you know where not to go. And it sounds very similar to what they're talking about here. But that service actually had a really big back backlash. It turned out that... Uh, Often people were just flagging, you know, ethnic minority neighborhoods. Um, it turns out for this purpose, you're better off checking the crime map. And so, you know, people were fighting. I, I think some things like this just shouldn't be built. So, okay, this is getting kind of long. I finally need to talk, to my, talk about my solution. So no moderation doesn't work. One moderator to rule them all doesn't work. These companies need to come up with a marketplace of moderators, just like they have a marketplace of content creators. So if I were a user of, say, Twitter or Facebook, then I should be able to mark down other users where I trust their tagging and categorizing of other users and news sources. And then I'll also categorize and tag users and news sources. And some people are only trust with certain things. So if I want, I can be very meticulous about this. But, and that's what the power users are going to do. Uh, they're going to categorize, they're going to race, rate. And yeah, even the extreme users, uh, they'll vote for the people that they like, and their votes will have no effect on the ranking of someone who doesn't uh, click into their network. So that kind of um, puts the brakes on the minority effect. If you have a strong group of 100, 1,000, 10,000 people who vote something down, so long as um, I'm not associated with any of those people, it should have no effect on me. So then what happens? So now, yes, you do get different camps of users, but now these camps can have both internal conversations among just themselves, and they could have intra-camp conversations. So you can sort of shore up beliefs with the people who are like you. And sometimes that's important. Sometimes you need to talk to people who have the basic common understanding that you do and sort of the basic standards of conversation that you do. 
and then you know you could talk to them and then you could kind of branch out as needed to the people who are good at connecting you to you know different parts of the world different parts of the internet and you can kind of keep the people who you really want to stay out of the way you can keep them out of the way and um, so in that way you can kind of learn more internally and externally we have this um, when we build recommendation systems because I build you know, I worked a lot on the Foursquare recommendation systems, and I've been to the Recommender Systems Conference, ACM, uh, for several years, 2012, 2014, 2016. And that's a really important concept is kind of in, you know, you want to get, you want to be recommended something that's a little bit unexpected. You don't want it to be, uh, there was a paper about this um, by uh, some people I know, uh, Alex Tuzilin, who's my professor at NYU. Maybe I'll try to find it and post it. But you want to be recommended something that is surprising, a little bit out of your comfort zone. Uh, you don't want to be, if you get recommended something that's way out of your comfort zone, you might not be ready for it and you'll ignore it. And if you get recommended something that's too similar to you, then it's just too obvious and it's not interesting as a recommendation. So, now you might be thinking all of this tagging and categorizing and ranking, the average person isn't going to want to do this. So what's the interface going to look like for the average person? You're right, the average person isn't going to want to do this. I mean, if you look at Google, I think uh, if you look at Google, uh, Google Plus, when they had their social network, one of the big differentiators that they had was that Google was that you were going to categorize your friends. These are my work friends. These are my friends from college. These are my family. These are my acquaintances, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It turned out that, um, well, first of all, you know, these things should be done automatically. Uh, but secondly, uh, people didn't really want to spend a whole lot of time organizing their friends. So what's the average person to do? But I do argue, by the way, that there are some people who are going to be very meticulous about this and who are going to be really into this. Those are going to be the super users. So, but for the average person who doesn't want to deal with this, you're going to, um, um, well, let's say it's Twitter. So once you set this up, you have rating and tagging, and you find out what all the camps are, and then you find kind of a representative user from each camp. And these camps could be in flux. You know, a new one might pop up. One might fissure into two uh, if they have a fight with each other. But you give a person different options on who their standard bearer moderator should be. So it doesn't mean that, 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 that I'm literally picking my moderator, but I have to pick among a small group of users. Let's say imagine like nine on the screen um, with a standard story that if you pick that user, this is how your content is going to be moderated. Uh, so, for example, there might be what I would call the, a New York Times-style moderator, and we can kind of guess what we would get if we follow them. You're going to have a, kind of a slightly uh, left-of-center discussion when it comes to politics. I kind of trust that they're not going to be like, they're not going to like heavily censor alternative views, but they might a little bit, and they're probably going to go a little harder on filtering out people who are just nasty and mean-spirited. And you might have kind of a religious or traditional one. They want to like keep it wholesome. They want to get the uh, they want to get the cursing and the sex out of it. Uh, you might have, you know, a politically conservative one. You, they might break into Trump, non-Trump, uh, or something else. Um, 
some of these are going to be real sticklers on what the discussion is going to be, and some of them are going to be very broad kind of free-for-alls, so you kind of have more choice. And it's sort of up to the UX team to kind of explain each one uh, very concisely with like maybe a picture of a person and a three-sentence description. So, you know, hey, maybe there'll be a filter for people who like to shout, insult, and use all caps. If that's your thing, sign up. There could be, you know, a PC police moderation channel. You can use the PC principal from South Park as the moderator. That would be a good picture as you understand what you're getting. I think that if this were set up, then we'd get a really interesting cross-section of worlds. I think there'd be less conflict among people who feel like they're being treated unfairly by the network as a whole. Uh, if they're being removed by one set of moderators, then they might be welcomed by another, and they'll still get to talk to the audience they want to talk to. Um, you know, and if you're worried about undermining you know, foreign governments, undermining democracy, undermining elections, again, they'll just be talking to the people who you know, want to hear their message and not to the broader community. Um, I think there'd still be some conflict in this system. I think of Reddit. So each subreddit, the way Reddit works is each subreddit has a moderator or a group of moderators. This is very top-down. It's not community. And some of them have very different flavors from each other. And it kind of works if the moderators stay present and active. Um, sometimes there's a fissure, and these subreddits will divide into two. Um, so what I'm proposing you know, involves a community of, of moderators and having the platform step back and say, you know, we as the platform, we as Facebook, just don't know what the right answer is and we're going to let our people decide. And I just don't see them doing that. I think that they're going to say, uh, we do know what the right answer is and that's why they'll continue to step in it from time to time. For one thing, I don't think that the public is going to accept the idea that the public will itself moderate. Uh, they are. They, the public hates the public. Uh, they're demanding a paternalistic solution, and it's not going to work because this is such uh, what we call adversarial problem. Facebook's top-down rules are going to be ta attacked from every possible angle, from every possible subgroup. Some people who you haven't even, you know, considered, and that's why you kind of need a bottom-up solution to it. So I have right here uh, Mark Zuckerberg's upcoming testimony before Congress. And uh, some of it is pretty short. I'll post it on the show notes. He says things like we're putting in more rules, we're increasing security. Imagine if he said to Congress, we're going to give the community tools to do its job and not take a strong position on what's proper. I think that Congress's collective head would just explode in the middle of the meeting. I'd like to see that. So I think that institutional inertia is hard to come by. If I were Facebook, the company, I try to build alternative services to disrupt myself, something that's worked uh, very well, even though it's counterintuitive. I think it works very well for Apple. Uh, for example, they have the iPad team that tries to cannibalize laptop sales. You might think that's bad for business, but here we are, and they're the most valuable company in the world. So what do you think of my solution? Uh, please let me know at localmaxradio at gmail.com and have a good week. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. 
This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxSquad. Have a great week. Feel the power. She said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna say.